Hey there, Marcus here. It is my joy and privilege to serve as pastor here at Awaken Church in Juneau, Alaska. I pray that in the next few moments, the, the word of God proclaimed is a blessing to you and is nourishing to your soul. But we believe here at Awaken that one of the ordinary means of God's grace in our life is the gathering of the people of God. We believe that it's in the gathering that, that we're known and that we know one another. That it's in the gathering that, that we are shaped and fashioned into the image of Jesus Christ. And so I want to invite you this Sunday to come and join us. Come and worship with us. But for now, I pray that you're encouraged by this sermon. God bless. Wives in the context of marriage, but we are back this morning in, e in Ephesians chapter 5 by popular demand. So um, this is on you, not, not on me. <laughs> we're, we're in some, some kind of little mini-series here, and so let, let me tell you how we got to this point this morning if you haven't been with us. Essentially, we have been for over a year now or about a year going through the gospel according to Mark together. And at the beginning of the year, we picked up our study in, in Mark after Advent and, and our, uh, Christmas back in Mark chapter 10. And in Mark chapter 10, right there in the beginning, the Pharisees approach Jesus and their intention is to discredit him and to destroy his reputation with the people. And so they figure that the best way to do that is to ask him about the issue of divorce, which was, as it is today, a, a divided issue with very strong and very mixed opinions. And so they question him about divorce and Jesus answers them. But as we discussed what, four or maybe five weeks ago now, four weeks ago now, the, the issue of divorce and why divorce is such a big deal, we recognized that we had to kind of discuss the, 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 the purpose of marriage. You know, if, if divorce is, if we want to understand why divorce is an issue, we have to understand why marriage is so important to God. What, what is God's good design behind marriage? And so we looked at that, and then we realized, well, how do men and women function within the context of marriage? If marriage is important, then, then how, how does each person in that marriage, are, are there parameters? Is it, does it just kind of make it up as you go along? And so last week, we looked at the role of the wife in God's design for marriage. And I got through my notes to the end, and I got to the point uh, of discussing men, and I looked at the clock, and I was out of time. And so I said, men, you know what you're supposed to be doing. Let's pray. And uh, a lot of you came up and said, oh, hold on a second. Um, it's not fair that we, we address the women, but we don't address the men. And, and in reality, while it's likely that, that we all have a, somewhat of an understanding of how men ought to act, the truth is, is that not, not all of us have a clear picture of what that's supposed to look like. And, and in fact, even if we do, which in our church, by the way, there, there are uh, a number of godly men and, and godly families that are, that are trying with, to work this kind of thing out, it, it is still good for us to be reminded, to remember what the Word of God says about these kinds of of things. It's Psalm 1, 1 and 2 that says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. 
but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So it's good for us to not read something just once and move on to the next thing, but day and night, repeatedly, month after month, year after the year for our lives, just be immersed in the Word of God. It, it is the Word of God that the Spirit of God uses to transform us and to conform us to the image of Christ. It does not happen apart from the Word. Can I get a hearty amen this morning? All right. Uh, I'm preaching about the role of men. I am a man. I am married, so I am going to be equally convicted along with you this morning. So you have to keep, keep me encouraged, and I'll try to encourage you as well. All right, turn with me now to Ephesians chapter 5. And we're going to pick it up this morning a little bit further back than we have the past couple weeks in verse 15. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. This is the word of God. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of, us, each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we just confess again uh, our need for you to help us to understand this, to, uh, to illuminate the eyes of our hearts, to behold the, the beauty of your truth. And we ask, Lord, that as we consider uh, now this morning together the role of men that, uh, in marriage, that you would, um, that you would convict and encourage that you would uh, that your word would pierce through the, the cultural influences and the noise 
on this issue that exists today and that it would uh, just cut right to our hearts. Your word says that that the word is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to, div- to divide bone from marrow. So would you, would you do that in us this morning, we pray. In your beautiful name, amen. Amen. The Apostle Paul, in this section of Scripture, illuminates for us what he calls the mystery that has been revealed. He illuminates for us that the purpose, that God's design behind marriage from the beginning that was at one time unknown has now been made known, and that is that marriage is designed not only for the multiplication and the flourishing of the human race. Marriage is designed not only for companionship and for partnership in life, but that ultimately and above everything, marriage was designed to show forth in the creation on earth a living picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. Now, we have said week after week after week, and I will say it again this morning, that God did not look down at his creation and say, what in all of my creation can I use to explain the relationship between the Messiah, the Christ, our Savior, and his people, the church? It was actually the reverse. Before the beginning of time, God said, I am going to create marriage to glorify my name by putting this living picture of the gospel on display in every home. It is a mystery that has now been revealed. And we have explained uh, together all these weeks that when the Bible says that it's a mystery, it doesn't mean that we can't understand it or that it's unknown to us, but rather that it was once unknown and is now been made known. But as I've been thinking about this again um, this week, and, and as we have continued, we've felt the need together to continue to talk about this subject, not just one week, not just two weeks, but now four weeks, and who knows by the end, maybe we'll move on to a fifth and, and a sixth week. It, it seems like there, there is some mystery here. Like, like there is some sort of of issue in in our minds to be able to fully comprehend and embrace this particular topic. It, It seems like the noise out in the world, in our culture, is so loud on this issue that even as Christians who love the word, who believe that it is, that it is good, that it is God-breathed, that it is, it is for our, our joy and for our flourishing, we still get a little fuzzy when we talk about this is your issue. But church, it, it is not a mystery. It is easy to understand. It is right there before us on the pages of Scripture. The question is not, what is God's design for marriage? The question that is really before each one of us, every single day, this morning included, is do I believe that this is God's truth and that ultimately obedience to his truth is for my good? Do I believe that God actually knows what is good 
for his people, or do I believe that I have a better plan? I have a 21st century uh, idea that is more helpful and would bring about more joy for men and women than God's plan for marriage. It seems like some things are lost on us when it comes to this topic. That's not to say, by the way, that there are not godly men and women that, that do get this, as I said, and are trying to live this out. There, there are all over the world, and I have been amazed as I've talked to you how, how many of you get this and are struggling imperfectly, but are, but are struggling and striving to apply God's design for marriage in your life. Now, I, I just want to say I'm getting away from my notes, which is a dangerous thing, but I, I want to say that I recognize that as we've talked about each aspect of this as we've gone along, that a lot of things have been left unsaid. Uh, you know, what about certain special circumstances? What, what, what do I do now? I, I'm in a position where I, I have to work, and I, I can't leave my job and be home with my kids, or my husband is disabled. Like, how do I, what about all these special circumstances? And I just want to if I could just pastorally say to you this morning, if you are looking for excuses and looking for exceptions, you are missing the point. You're missing the point. There are, of course, situations in life where, where it is necessary to, to um, divert from what God instructs us, but th that does not mean that his design and his plan and his commands change. For example... Um, every believer is commanded to be baptized, right? Believe, be baptized. But if a person is on their deathbed and they make a profession of faith and there's no water around, are they going to hell because they weren't baptized? I'm waiting for you to answer. I don't know. <laughs> I wonder. Well, the, the, answer, the answer, of course, is, is no. But does that change the command that we ought to believe and be baptized? No, not at all. And the same, same refers to the same train of thought here. Now, I'm, I'm going to get back because we could go somewhere that, where I get in trouble. And then, yeah, all right. Back to my notes, which I'm lost now. All right. So marriage is this mystery. This mystery that has now been revealed. And that mystery that is revealed is that Marriages, husbands and wives together, put on display the relationship between Christ and his church. And so we looked all these weeks that the, the wife is playing the role in the marriage of the church. And in her glad submission to her husband, she is ultimately submitting to the Lord, putting her, her trust and her faith in him. And it is the husband's role to lead and to love with Christ like leadership and Christ-like behavior. Now, if we are to understand how important this is, we have to go, I think, one layer deeper than just marriage is designed to glorify God and, and put on display the gospel. We need to be reminded together again this morning that everything in creation and everything that God does, he does for his glory. He does for his glory. Many times Christians, especially 
uh, those of us who grew up in the Western church, we, we have this mindset where we think that God is just so infatuated with us that everything he does, he does for us. He, he does so that we would be happy, so that we would flourish, so that we would, and, and all of those, all of that is true, but it is secondary. It is secondary. The ultimate purpose behind all things that God does is the glory and renown of his name. Everything he created, he created for his glory. We are saved by grace for his glory. The wicked who do not believe in the name of Jesus Christ and are condemned eternally to hell is for the glory of his name. His justice and his mercy, both for his glory. He says, I create calamity for my glory. I bring blessing for my glory. Everything that God does, he does for his glory. Christians, we are commanded in Scripture, to do everything that we do for the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. We backed up a, a few verses uh, in our text in Ephesians this morning because I wanted you to see these commands to the church that, that we are commanded together to be singing and making melody to the Lord with thankful hearts, giving thanks in everything, giving thanks in all things and submitting to one another. God's great purpose behind everything is to glorify himself. You need to understand that when you were saved, you were saved for his glory. Ephesians 2.1 says, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So I just want to pause there for a moment and we'll... We'll tie this back together. Don't worry. If you're like, well, I thought we were roll of men. Where, where are we going this morning? Apart from Jesus Christ, you and I were hostile to God's will, to God's plans for everything, including marriage, including marriage. There was a hostility in each one of us. We were dead in our trespasses. We were once following the course of this world, the pattern of this world, the mindset of this world, the thinking of this world that is opposed to the will of God and opposed to the glory of God, that in fact hates God. But in verse 4 of Ephesians 2, it says, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his kindness towards us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So you have been saved by grace for his glory. But what I want you to see this morning is that we are, verse 10, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for, beforehand that we should walk in him. What I want you to see this morning is that when you were transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, you were then given the ability by the Spirit working in you to actually obey and believe and, and get this, delight in God's word and in his commands. So I don't understand why there is still within the church, in the midst of the people of God, a worldly mindset that is hostile to God's word on this subject. I don't understand why we get through Ephesians 1 and 2 and 3 and 4, and we are excited about the grace that we've received. In chapter 4, we're excited that we've all been united together as one people, Jew and Gentile alike, as one body, another mystery that's been revealed. And then we, we get to chapter 5, and it says, walk in love, sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs over one another, submit to one another, wives to your own husband. We go, whoa, 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 whoa. This is a different culture, different world, different time. And all of a sudden, the mindset of the world in which you once lived now floods back to the surface of your train of thought. How, how, how does that happen? Well, I'll tell you why it happens. It happens because Satan hates marriage. Hates it. Why? Well, because we all understand now that marriage is this beautiful picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. That marriage is not just for our good. If it was just for human flourishing, Satan would care less about it. But marriage is a picture of the gospel. It is this bright neon sign saying Christ, the church belongs to Christ. And Christ belongs to his church. And so this is a dangerous area for us. It's an area that we need to be on our guard of our own thinking and our own sin and our own flesh that creeps up in our thinking. And we need to be careful that our thoughts are shaped not by our emotions, not by our opinions, not by, certainly not by the world or the culture, but they are shaped exclusively by the word of God, if indeed we believe that the word of God is true. We were enabled by the Spirit to be obedient. And so in Romans 6, it says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In, in other words, are, are we to return back to our, our patterns of, of worldly thinking if we've been saved by grace? Paul says, by no means, how, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? Back in, down in verse 20 of Romans 6, it says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, you, you could care less about God's will for anything, let alone marriage. 
But he says, But what fruit were you getting from that at that time? For the things of which now you are now ashamed. But the end of those things is death. But listen, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, you have been freed from that pattern of thinking that was opposed to the will of God that was leading you to eternal death. And you, Christian, you, brother, you, sister, you you have been filled with the Spirit who is the Spirit of truth. And He is able to illuminate the truth of God's Word that we might be conformed, that we might be transformed, that we would be sanctified and conformed to the image of Christ. And our sanctification leads to eternal life. So everything that God does, he does for his glory. He does for his namesake. And he has saved you so that he is not glorified by pouring his wrath upon you, but rather he is glorified by graciously transforming you and enabling you to be obedient to his word. Which is why Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will bear much fruit. So the real question is, is do we believe this? And do we believe this universally on every subject or just the ones we pick and choose? Are you, are you tracking with me this morning? I, I say this and... Again, I'm, I apologize if it's a little confusing. I, I, I feel the need to just kind of clarify because the feedback that I've gotten all these, week, all these weeks is, yeah, buts. Yeah, but what about my situation? What about my circumstance? What? And I, I just don't understand how we could have that sort of division in our minds. So... Um, that's all I'm going to say on the subject. Let's, let's move on. All right, guys, you ready? Okay, I'm not. Let's look at the role of the husband. Look back with me. Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Okay, let's stop right there. So, so here's, here's the problem. And here's what was the problem last week. We always discuss, when the church comes together and talks about this topic, or even when Christians get together over coffee and they they talk about this portion of Scripture, what almost always inevitably happens is the the whole conversation is is taken up by the issue of of submission, of the wife submitting to the husband. And there's all kinds of like, well, hold on, it's a different culture, and da 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 And we've already, we spent two weeks looking at what that means. If you weren't here, you can go online and, and you can listen to that. But, but once those conversations move on from the issue of submission, it, it gets stuck in another point, and that is the issue of 
headship, the issue of headship. And so here we, here we are back, and, and we're trying to get past the, this title of headship in order to understand how a husband is to actually carry out that role of headship. So just, I want to clarify a couple things this morning. We're not going to have this long, drawn-out debate about it because there is no debate. It, it says that the husband is the head of the wife just as Christ is the head of the church. Now, guys, before you get too proud or too puffed up about that, you just hold on for just a second, okay? But let me make one thing clear. Headship does not mean, well, he's just kind of the source uh, of of joy and provision. It does not mean, yeah, he's the head, but as one popular uh, teacher once said, the wife is the neck that turns the head, right? It doesn't mean that he is to be the, the fountain source that makes sure that the family is, is just simply taken care of and has everything they need, though that's a part of it. Headship in the Greek, kalafi here means in charge. Now, I, I have grown up in the church, and I have heard that translated all kinds of different ways. Uh, I've, I've heard it manipulated. I've heard it changed. I've heard the fountain source thing. I've heard the neck thing. I've, I've heard the different culture, different time thing. But it does not change what it says. The word that we translate headship literally means the one that is in charge. Now, guys, I said, don't get all puffed up because let's clarify what that actually means. It doesn't mean what I say goes. It means that the husband bears the responsibility of leadership. He bears the responsibility of leadership. He, he bears the responsibility of making sure that the husband and the wife and the family unit understand the direction that they are supposed to be heading and that they get that way, that they go in that direction. Now, I, I want to help you understand this a little bit. Let's say that you walk into um, a finance office downtown and you're talking to the receptionist behind the, the desk, who, who's a man or a woman, okay? Let's just take that issue off the table, okay? And they say to you, I can't answer that question for you. You need to speak to the head of finance. W would you stop and go, oh, hey, don't, don't talk down to yourself like that. You are just as capable of answering that question as the head of finance. Would you respond that way? No, because we understand that there is somebody in this office who, who ultimately bears the responsibility of making this decision. That they have no greater worth, they have no greater value, they're not any more important. Both people are human beings, created equally in the image of God, but one person bears the responsibility of leadership and making sure that the whole office is heading in the right direction. Say you're at Home Depot. I've been at Home Depot a lot lately, as many of you know. So that's why there's all these Home Depot sermon illustrations. And you walk up to the person on the floor, and you say, this product is damaged. Can I have 50% off? What's the person going to say? Let me speak to my manager. Let me ask the head of the electrical department. There, there's somebody who bears the responsibility of leadership. Is, is that clear? So then we come to marriage, 
And we understand that in every sphere of society, there has to be some sort of structure in order for things to operate properly. But we come to marriage, and we read that the husband is the head, and we go, oh, hold on, inequality. And it has nothing to do with value. It has everything to do with God's design for the flourishing of both the husband and the wife and the family unit. So it means leadership. It means the one who bears responsibility. But as every leader knows, domineering leadership is not leadership. I'm in charge is not leadership. What I say goes is not leadership. What do you know is not leadership. Every good leader knows that what leadership looks like is submission and service. What leadership looks like is putting the needs of those in whom, whose care and whose charge you have been placed over, that their flourishing, that their development, that their growth takes priority even over your own. Leaders of organizations and leaders of the church and other areas understand that leadership is bearing that responsibility and understanding that you may never be recognized for it, you may never be appreciated for it, but you still quietly and humbly put the needs of your wife above your own. Husbands, you are called to be the head as Christ is the head of the church who is his body and who is its savior. Its savior. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Let's consider this idea of Christ being its savior. Actually, I don't have time. So let's keep moving. I promised you one more week, right? I am very lost. Well, Let's do it anyways. It's so important. These things are so important. We have to do it. All right, so the husband is the head of Christ, or head of the, the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, who is its Savior. So the headship thing, guys, husbands, the headship thing sounds really great until the whole Savior thing comes into the picture, right? It, it sounds great and, it, until we recognize that to be the head, it, it requires sacrifice that is equivalent. So what's our example? What are husbands to be looking at? What, what's the kind of the model? Well, it's Christ who is the savior of his bride, the church. So before we get all puffed up and yeah, I, I make the decisions, you need to recognize that the only decision you need to wake up and make in the morning, husbands, is that you will do whatever is necessary to be a model of the savior to your wife. 
who, though he was in the form of God, did not count his equality with God a thing to hold on to, but he humbled himself, being born in the likeness of men. He took on flesh. And even more so, he took on the role of a servant, even to the point of death, even death on the cross. What it looks like for the husband to be the head is to sacrifice everything, even his own life, for the salvation and the sanctification of his bride. That is what headship means. That is what Christ-like leadership looks like. It looks like sacrifice. It looks like unconditional and unwavering service. Love your wives. Here's the command. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Don't look at me. Look back at the text, guys. Verse 25. Here's your command. Last week, we saw the wife's command. Submit to your husbands. Husbands, here's, here's our command. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Let's pause right there. seems simple enough, doesn't it? Love your wives. Love your wives. What, what, what we need to start with here is the fact that this is, in biblical times, a radical idea. And it's just as radical as an idea today. See, oftentimes the, the view is that the, the Christian idea of marriage, the, the biblical design for marriage is, is somehow a, um, a diminishing of the value of women. Don't we? Isn't that the way the world views it? It is an unequal, am I the only one that sees that? Of course not. That, that, that's kind of the, the egalitarian view is the predominant view in our culture. But what we need to recognize is that from the beginning, this actually was a radically new idea for the people of God. You see, 2,000 years ago, when Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, women were property. They were the equivalent of cattle. They had absolutely no value, absolutely no responsibility, absolutely no rights whatsoever they were the possession of their husband and they were to keep silent and had no rights. And so the gospel uh, comes to the earth and we find out that, that everything is now changed for the people of God who have believed and trusted in his name, that, that God is doing something different in our hearts. And so he commands the people of God, particularly the men, he says, husbands, love your wives. Love your wives. Because see, what had happened is over the course of time, sin had done what sin does, and it had corrupted the the. God's design in showing forth his image in both men and women and showing forth the, the beauty that marriage was supposed to display. And so Paul writes and says, here's a radical new idea made possible by the gospel. Husbands, don't treat your wives as property. 
love your wives. And not only that, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Could you imagine being a a man 2,000 years ago in Jewish society and culture and being told, you give everything for the service and the sanctification of your wife. You love her unconditionally, no matter what it costs you, even if it costs you your life. You love her the exact way that the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, loved you and ransomed you despite your sin. You, husbands, love your wives. Love your wives. This is a radical new idea. This is an idea that says women are co-equal heirs in the kingdom. They are image bearers of God. They are first and foremost your sisters in Christ. So love them unconditionally and put them first. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Well, how, how did Christ love the church? How did he love the church? Let's, let's look at that. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We understand that point. But why? What's the end? What's the goal? Why did Christ, how, why did he love the church the way that he loved us? Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself, in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. So how does a husband, how does a godly husband love his wife? What's his goal? What's his aim? His aim is at whatever cost her sanctification, her holiness, her being blameless before the Lord. Husbands, it is your responsibility to model Christ-like behavior in serving and in cultivating an environment where your wife's sanctification can flourish where her maturing and being conformed to the image of Christ is is made possible, where she can be made holy and pure and without blemish. We are to love our wives in a way that does not lead them to sin, but leads them into a path of sanctification. If we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church, then we are to do whatever it takes, even giving up ourselves for her sake, for her joy, for her fulfillment, for her development, for her joy, for her satisfaction, for her cleansing, for her splendor that she would be holy, that she would be without blemish. That is what we're called to do. Verse 28, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Husbands are called to love their wives with the agape 
type love. That is a familiar word to church folk, agape love. It is an unconditional love. Let me, let me describe um, as one, it was defined one way, like this. To love your wife, to agape her, is to have a strong, non-sexual affection and love for a person and for their good as understood by God's moral character, especially characterized by a willing forfeiture of rights or privileges in another person's behalf. So to have headship and to love your wives is to do, to have such a love for her and affection for her that the husband would do whatever is necessary for their good as understood by God's moral command, his moral character. To be willing to forfeit your right, not to demand your right, to forfeit your rights, forfeit your privileges, forfeit your happiness, forfeit your uh, quiet time, your relaxation, your time on the couch, your Saturdays, your Sunday mornings where you're here instead of out fishing. For the sake of her. For her sanctification. For her upbuilding. This is the way that Christ loved us. This type of sacrificial love. He did not consider his equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself. An example of this would be in John 13, where Jesus gets up at the Passover meal and girds himself. And he begins to wash the disciples' feet, and they are shocked by this. And he says, just as I have loved you, served you, so you are to love and serve each other. And in that very drastic display, we see that Christ loved his church to the point of humility humility for, for our sake, that we would be cleansed from our sin. And, and so we are to love husbands, love our wives. The manner, so that's the end, her sanctification. The manner is to love your wife as you love your own body. There, there's a sense in this oneness. Paul does mention again what Jesus referenced, and that is that the, the man and woman will come together. The two will become one flesh, that we will become one body as the church is Christ's body and one with him. There is a, a sense in which husbands, the way we love our wives, we are essentially loving ourselves at the same time. Now, I, I hope that motivates you. If you need a little extra motivation. In Jewish culture, it is unthinkable to harm the body. They understood that we were image bearers of God to cause physical harm on the body. It was just absolutely unthinkable as it is or should be for us uh, today. 
but the essence is to, instead of harming, but rather nurture and, and protect and provide for your wife the same way that you would provide for yourself. Empty yourself for the sake of your wife. Now, when we tie the two roles together and we go back to wives submit to your husbands, I have never heard a woman who is filled by the Spirit. Now, I should clarify, it is very possible for a woman, and in fact, likely for a, a woman who is not filled with the Spirit, to still wage war against a husband who is attempting to live this way. And by the way, the Bible does have a lot to say uh, about marriages where one spouse is a believer and the other isn't. And so husbands, I'll, I'll just pass this along to you that if you are a believer and your wife is not and she no longer allows you to do this and she wants out and she's trying to get away, let her go. As difficult as that is and as, as backwards as that seems based on what we have said so far about the issue of divorce. But I, I've never heard a woman that is filled with the Spirit say, I have no desire to follow a leadership, the leadership of a man who is wanting to sacrifice himself for my sanctification. Doesn't it make it seem so much more balanced? I have never heard a godly woman say, I don't want you sacrificing for my sake. I don't want you upholding me putting me first above all things. I am just fine by myself, thank you very much. But no, rather, when, when the husband and the wife are both engaging in this together, what do we begin to see? We begin to see the picture of the gospel that it was intended to be. We begin to see a husband displaying Christ-like leadership, which is sacrificial leadership, and we begin to see a wife who is able to joyfully and gladly submit to that type of sacrificial leadership. So husbands, since, since the weight is on us this morning, or, or, since you and I were the ones being addressed, let me ask you, when is the last time that you sacrificially loved your wife for the ex express intention of her sanctification? When is the last time that you intentionally died to yourself and to your will and your desires so that she would be put in a position to be all that she was created to be in Christ? That is a, that's a tough question to think about. It, it's hard for me to think about. I don't want to say it because then I got to hear it. But w w do you provoke your wife to anger? Do you say things and do things that you know are going to lead her into a place of sin? Or do you serve and lead in such a way that you reduce the opportunity to lead her away from God's will and rather operate in a way that leads her towards obedience in God's, to God's will? That is the type of sacrificial leadership that we're talking about. Now, here's, here's the truth. 
we can't do this in our own strength, can we? Men or women, we, we cannot do this. And in fact, our, our flesh wars against this idea. We hate this idea in our flesh. But if you have been born again and have been given the Spirit of God, there is something inside of us that, that, that longs to put this on display, or at least there should be. And, and here's the good news. It is possible by the work of the Spirit in each one of us. So husbands, you're not able to fulfill this role, are you? Unless you are abiding in Christ yourself. And his word is abiding in you. You can't expect to be the godly type of husband that you're called to be if you're not following after Christ as you've been called into, right? But when a husband and a wife are on the same page and seeking to do this together, what we see is the gospel on display. And it's countercultural, isn't it? And it's different than what we see, isn't it? And what we're told is normal and, and right, but that's kind of exactly the point, isn't it? when godly men and women seek to put this on display, it is this blaring neon sign pointing to Christ. Of course it looks different than what the world says about marriage. Of course it does. Because marriage refers to Christ and his church. Let's pray. So much here, Lord, for us to, um, to understand and to live um, in just these few verses. There is thousands upon thousands of implications and questions and decisions that are made on, on a daily basis. And so we ask not that we would understand things fully right now, but simply that you would lead us every day. That as we go from this place and as we wake up tomorrow morning, that you would graciously by your spirit be washing us with your word, all of us, and sanctifying us. And I pray that as we who are, um, those who are married seek to live this out, I, I pray, God, that you would just graciously work in the marriages in this church and in your church around the world. I pray for those who are single with a desire to be married, that those marriages would begin on this biblical foundation instead of a worldly one. And for those who are single now and children, I pray that they would be truth-tellers on this subject instead of poor counsel so that the marriages here would glorify you by putting the gospel on display. That, that is our desire, Lord. So would you do that in us, we ask in your name. Everybody said, amen. Well, would you stand with me this morning? Let's, uh, let's finish our time together singing and then we'll...